last week we, we talked about uh, pride and humility, and uh, it's another opportunity to kind of go a little bit further into you know, a somewhat similar topic, um, but I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about the idea of, of compromise. Um, often in, a, uh, in any really relationship, whether it's, it's a marriage or whether it's uh, in a business or any, any time when parties get together, uh, compromise is usually a, a winning strategy. You know, I might want Mexican for tonight, but my wife might want Chinese, and unless I find one of those uh, niche Mexican-Asian fusion restaurants, you know, that, that gives us everything that we want, uh, likely one of us will have to get what we, de- you know, only one of us will get what we desire for that night. And so maybe we have Mexican tonight and we'll have Chinese the next time we go out. So we make these compromises, and these things are often seen as, again, like win-win for everybody. Well, there's one type of compromise that is never a win-win. When it comes to morality or ethics or values, compromise is a losing strategy. Choosing to compromise too often can, over time, change a person little by little until, at some point, that person is hardly recognizable. I mean, you can see the compromising effects That happened due to an improper diet. You can see the compromising effects over time to somebody who makes unhealthy life choices. You can see the compromising effects of a business choosing profit over standards. You can even see it in academic institutions, where if you just look at the landscape of many of the so-called universities that we say are prestigious in our country, were once founded on the principles of promoting Christ. But now those campuses tolerate anything but. Now, changes don't always occur overnight. And sometimes it's hard to see that drift over time. But at some point, when it is recognized, it may either be too late or too difficult to go back. So we want to avoid that from happening. So this morning we're going to be looking at one of you know, countless examples that we could have looked at where spiritual compromise has been made and the effects can be seen. As sinful creatures, we tend to drift towards making some of these mistakes. It's my hope that we would recognize some of the warning signs that we'll see in our passage this morning and refocus our attention on what is central or maybe more importantly, who is central to our faith. So I want you to turn to the book of Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Not often one we go to when we think about preaching on a Sunday morning. But the book of Malachi is, uh, has, a, has a special place in my heart. Um, so as you turn there, just to kind of give you an introduction on, on this book, Malachi uh, is where we derive it from the, the author's name, his name means my messenger. And Malachi, being true to his name, we see is a messenger of God. And he is speaking to the nation of Israel almost a hundred years, almost a century after the, the nation of Israel was released from captivity. Now, if you remember the, when Israel had split into Israel and, and Judah, the northern tribes were captured of uh, Israel was captured by the Assyrians and taken away into captivity. Judah was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and later this uh, dominant force named the Persians would overtake them all. But the, the people had remained in captivity 
for uh, close to 150 years. And so, under the king of Persia, if you want to read about that history, about how it all came, came together, you can read that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But under the, the Persian king, he, God moved graciously in his heart to not only allow them to go back to their land, to say, you can go back to where we took you from, but to also reinstitute their, reinstitute their religious practices. And not only did he uh, allow them to go back, he even financed them to have the ability to rebuild not only their walls of their city, which would provide them protection, but also their temple as well, and provide protection even against neighboring threats who did not want the Israelites moving back. So this was a time of joy, a time of thankfulness that the Lord had worked miraculously to bring them back, to be a chosen nation again. And we find ourselves about 100 years after that time, and complacency has stepped in. So time to bring on the prophet. So Malachi comes to warn the people of a spiritual decline and to get them to refocus their attention on what is important. They have strayed from the God that they love, and now they detest the things that he approves of. So the thing that I love about Malachi is that this is like the last time we see God speaking through a prophet, right up until the time of the birth of Jesus. You know, God leaves his last message to the Israelites and then seems to go silent. The book ends with a warning, but also ends with a promise. But before we get to any of that, which we won't do that today, we're going to see that the prophet comes and speaks on behalf of God and says, listen, before we get to that warning and before I remind you of that promise, there's some things that you need to get in order in your house because you have strayed far from what God has desired. So we'll see the spiritual compromises that they made that caused them to get in the state that they were in. And we'll see God's response specifically to the spiritual leaders of the nation. He's talking to the priests here who have been confronted about compromising their positions. But there is hope for them. While God gives them some tough words, ultimately, he needs them to see that their actions do not honor him. And by not honoring God, their spiritual influence is compromised as well. So in our passage, we're going to see five ways to honor God. And in addition to seeing these five ways that you are to honor God, is that we will see uh, five ways that not honoring Him leads to spiritual compromise. So let's look at verse 6. As we kind of break down this passage, we're going to look at verses 6 through 14 this morning. Verse 6 says, a son honors his father. This is God speaking. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So we're going to see here, the first thing that we need to do is is to honor God is to revere him. And honoring God is revering him. Well, the first five verses in the book of Malachi is really kind of God saying, Israel, I love you. Israel, I have protected you. 
And you can look at other nations and, and people who I have not chosen, who I have not loved, and you can see the destruction that has come upon them. But you, Israel, you are different. And it is through you and my love for you that I'm going to do some marvelous things. And it is through my love to you that you are going to see that I am a marvelous God. And so it's a very positive message at the, at the beginning. But it kind of reads like a Dear John letter, you know, where you read like, I, I'm glad for our relationship and all the times we had. But you then sense that something is coming. And the something that's coming is in verse 6. And the rest of the book, almost towards the end, is God continually telling them, here are the things that have gone wrong with our relationship. And so he offers, you know, first, some good words to remember the good times. But now we get to the, the tougher words. And he levels an accusation against them. And he get, begins with a simple statement. A son honors his father and a servant his master. And he makes these two kind of relational statements between you know, things that most of the people would have come to understand. And he said, a son honors his father and a son would honor his master. Well, no one would disagree with that. A son honors his father. That's a, a statement of fact. Right? The intent is that a son should honor his father. And similarly, a servant honors his master. The intent, again, is that a servant should have honor for his master. And if these things don't happen, then a, a relationship is severed. And even worse, a dishonorable son could be stoned, and a dishonorable slave could be disposed of. But beyond the consequences, a lack of honor shows a lack of love. And God said that he loved him, but he's not feeling that love back. And he's not seeing that love through their actions. And love in both these instances is shown as respect or honor. We spoke about honor last week. Honor is something that is due to someone who is above you. But as followers of Jesus, honor is not something that we seek for ourselves. But for God, God above all things is owed the honor that he deserves as our creator, as our sustainer. And the one who brought Israel out of captivity and gave them a place of their own, with a city of their own, and a temple of their own. And so God immediately shows a correlation. He says, if he is a father to Israel, which was understood by the people in this case, then where is his honor? The word for honor is kavod, it means glory. So where is the glory that God deserves? He is not just their father, he is not just their master, but he is more than that. And as such, these things are deserved of him and for him. And so he asks, if he is a master, which the people would, again, agreed that he is, then where is his fear? He wonders, where is the fear of the people? All right, the fear of God is putting God in his proper place. And complacency, when, it's, when it sets in, over time, you just see there is no fear. There is no respect. You see that more clearly when you see people who don't respect their fathers, sons who don't respect their fathers, or employees or servants who don't respect their masters, or whatever relationship that is where there is this you know, honor and 
someone who's below that, that kind of chain. And when that is missing, you see that something is not right. And that there is no fear. There is no fear of any consequence for their actions. And God is here to remind them that there should be. Too often men try to put God on a level playing ground. And sometimes we're used to doing it with our bosses. And sometimes we're used to doing it with our teachers. And sometimes we're used to doing it even with our fathers by calling them by their first name instead of by their title. And sometimes we fail to give honor and respect where honor and respect is due. But we always want to keep the lines clear. And J.I. Packer in his book, uh, Knowing God, has this kind of, a, kind of a longer quote, but I think he kind of captures this idea well. And he says, I think of the two pans of an old-fashioned pair of scales. If one goes up, the other goes down. Once upon a time, folks knew that God was great and that man, by comparison, was small. Each individual carried around a sense of his own smallness in the greatness of God's world. However, the scale pans are in a different relation today. Man has risen in his own estimation. He thinks of himself as great, grand, and marvelously resourceful. This means inevitably that our thoughts about God have shrunk. And God goes down in our estimation. He gets smaller. He also exists now only for our pleasure, our convenience, and our health, rather than we existing for his glory. Now, I am an old-fashioned Christian, and I believe that we exist for the glory of God. So the first thing I always want to do in any teaching of Christianity is to attempt to try and get those scale pans reversed. I want to try and show folks that God is, in, is the one of central importance. We exist for His praise, to worship Him and find our joy and fulfillment in Him. Therefore, He must have all the glory. God is great, and He must be acknowledged as great. I think there's a tremendous difference between the view that God saves us and the idea that we save ourselves with God's help. Formula number one, uh, number two fits the modern idea, while formula number one, as I read my Bible, is scriptural. We do not see salvation straight until we recognize that from first to last, it is God's work. He didn't need to save us. He owed us nothing but damnation after we sinned. What he does, though, is to move in mercy. He sends us a Savior and His Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us to faith in that Savior. Then He keeps us in that faith and brings us to His glory. It is His work from beginning to end. God saves sinners. It does, of course, put us down very low. It is that aspect of the gospel that presents the biggest challenges to the modern viewpoint. But we must not forget that it also sets God up very high. It reveals to us a God who is very great, very gracious and very glorious, a God who is certainly worthy of our worship. Now, through the actions of the Israelites, we actually see the first slip into compromise is really not putting God in his proper place. But we can show honor to him by reverence and fear and respect to our God. Once you allow yourself not to fear God, to not to honor him, to not give him glory, you you are on that road to compromise. It often happens with rationalizations. I understand what God would want me to do, but, and we fill in 
our minds with some pragmatic reason while we might do the opposite. We feel like we need to exercise our right to engage in a certain activity because we have freedom to do so. We have freedom in our country. Couldn't we, shouldn't we have freedom in all other areas? Sometimes we feel like we can properly handle it, so we should be able to exercise whatever it is and just go ahead and do it. But before we choose to do anything, we should filter through our minds a couple questions. And these two questions should be, does doing this thing honor God? And does doing this thing harm God's reputation? Or similarly, we could ask, does it paint God in a positive light, or does it portray God in a negative light? So maybe at this point you're struggling to find the correlation between how does what I do affect God, or what people think of God. Well, in verse 6, God is concerned about his reputation. He repeats several times here, and he's repeated it in the past through other prophets, and at other times, that he is concerned about his name. So what is the significance? And what is, why is God so concerned about his name? Right? Is this self-centeredness? I mean, as, as harsh as that may sound, yes. Right? Our lives are to be God-centered and God-focused. And as a virtue, God is the only one who can claim this ability to be self-focused. So what does it mean for his name to be tarnished? Well, what is the importance of God's name? The first time that God revealed his name to Moses, at this point, he was known as, he revealed himself to to Abraham and was known as the God of Abraham. And then he revealed himself to Isaac and he was known as the God of Isaac. And then he uh, revealed himself to Jacob and he was known as the God of Jacob. And sometimes all three together. But God reveals himself to Moses and he says, if you're going to call me by anything, I want you to call me by my name, which is Yahweh. And it means I am. I am. I am not a God of just your forefathers, but I am a God of you. I am the only God and I exist. And so God's name is important because it describes who he is. And not only defines who he is, but it defines whose are his as well. By that designation that I am the God of Abraham, you would know that Abraham follows this particular God. And whatever God that you say that you follow, you are a representative of that God. And so one of the Ten Commandments that God gives to Moses shortly after he revealed himself was that he said to not take God's name in vain. And some of us have this conception about what that means. And the Jews took that to mean that whenever we see God's name, Yahweh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's going to be replaced by this other Hebrew word, Adonai. So we don't take it, say his name mistakenly or in a flippant manner. So they just replace the name with something else. That word Adonai means Lord. And when you guys look at your Bible in the Old Testament, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. And that's exactly the word that they replaced. And so instead of saying his name Yahweh, they would say Lord, which is a right title about who God is. But in our minds, we think then that taking God's name in vain is just by not saying his name in an incorrect manner or again, in a flippant manner. 
But God meant much more than that, right? God does not have a body. He is spirit. So who is it that represents him? It is his followers. And so by taking God's name in vain is really by any action or any association. If you say, I worship this God and this God alone, but your actions represent something else, you're taking God's name in vain. All right, and we know that. We know that if, you know, your son or daughter Maybe you you said this by one of your parents, like, make sure you behave properly because you are a, you know, and fill in your last name, right? Our name precedes us. Our name goes before you. If you had an older sibling, sometimes teachers might have uh, some thought about who you are based upon your older sibling's actions or reputation, and then that impresses down upon you. And so God is saying, you are harming my name. All these nations out there in the world worship all these other gods. How am I to be distinct? And one way that God is distinct is through the people who represent him. And of all the people to represent God in a worthy manner, it should be the priests. But we can see from the priest's response that they're questioning how they've wronged God. They're like, what? You know, how have we despised your name? And so, you know, a few different things. They, one, maybe have no idea. They're just ignorant. But I don't think that's the case because they know the law and they know exactly what they're doing and God will tell them exactly where they have gone wrong. Or maybe they have justified their actions for so long that they're just in denial about what they have done. Perhaps they know exactly what they're doing wrong, but they don't care. That's a dangerous place to be. Maybe they know what they're doing is wrong, and they desire to stop doing it, but they just don't know how. I mean, at all times in our life, we could probably identify at one phase or one thought or one response with maybe their reasoning for not honoring God's name. And the word despise that God says, you've despised my name, means to show contempt. And they thought God is just trivial. His name had been trivialized by their actions. It's as if a stranger came up to the priests and and asked him, who is the Lord? And they responded by saying, oh, he's nobody really. And this is a serious offense. That's why Jesus would later reiterate, he says, if you deny me on earth, I will deny you in heaven. So the priests claim to be in the dark about how they've offended God, and so God explains exactly what they've done, so they can't rest in their denial. They're not honoring him, and we see that they've slipped into compromise. Secondly, we'll see that honoring God is giving God your best. They weren't doing that. In verse 7, he says, You've despised my name by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, well, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? 
So secondly, we see that they uh, slip into compromise by not recognizing or admitting their faults. Now we see how deep that the compromise has run because God alludes again to what the issue might be. And he says that they're presenting polluted or what we would call defiled food upon the altar. And for some reason, they still don't understand. He directly lands an accusation and they're like, hmm, doesn't ring a bell. And so he has to explain it. And so God says that the priests are saying that the table of the Lord is to be despised or held in contempt. Right? The greatest way that we interact with God is through our worship of him. And these priests were to be that conduit between the, all the, the general population of Israel and God in their worship in the temple. And the, the way that God had instituted that man could become right with God was through their sacrifices, But they've made certain choices, right? And their actions have reviled God. And so there is always a choice to be made. And they say that the Lord's table is despised if we sacrifice these things, but they do it anyway. And all the priests would have known that offering something unacceptable would result in bad consequences. They would have known that in their history, the very first sons of the first priest, Aaron, were actually consumed on the spot because they came and they brought the wrong type of offering to the Lord. And they paid the consequences of that. You can read that in Leviticus 10. But God explains in black and white terms what the problem is. They've not upheld the law and they've not even considered God as worthy as their governor. All right, he says, give it to your governor. Give a lame animal to your, your governor. Give him a blind lamb. See how he would take it. All right, it betrays God in both the law and on principle. And there's a couple of verses that you can go to. In Deuteronomy 15.21, where he explicitly says, what kind of offering they need to give. He says, but if it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. And Leviticus 22 says the same thing. He says, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or for a freewill offering of the herd or the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. That's pretty clear. Right there in the law, crystal clear, the priests would have known that. But they refuse to yield to it. Right? And sometimes we have a tendency to do things contrary to Scripture. I mean, every once in a while, I find myself just acting irrationally, you know, and sometimes doing something that I know for some reason is something that I shouldn't do. But probably more often, things kind of creep in slowly. You know, what about offenses that occur out of neglect? Have you ever sacrificed something improper to God? Perhaps it is time or money. Have you ever rationalized not doing something? And we don't stop to, to answer, you know, ask these questions to to guilt us, 
We've all done these things. We've all cut corners. Our minds have wandered. But we need to look at these things squarely so we can turn back on course and find our right heading. I remember when my son was younger, we would have uh, these times of devotion. And, uh, you know, we'd be reading from the Bible a few years ago. And sometimes, you know, he just kind of has that attitude. Uh. And I, I just remember at one point thinking, you know, you, can, you could sit in front of a TV for an hour probably straight without blinking. But when the Bible is open for five minutes, it seems like this like, huge burden. And I just remember thinking that like, like we're coming before God. But as soon as like, that accusation like, entered my mind, I was just thinking, how many times has the Lord said the same thing about my actions, about my heart, about my responses? God is loving and kind, and he is compassionate. And he wants us to escape out of that rut. But it will take boldness to do so. And that leads us to our third point. We honor God by taking action. Verse 9 says, And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. So the Lord, speaking through Malachi, he, he pleads with the priest to come back to him. You know, will you not entreat God's favor? Will you not come back to me? Please, Lord, bless us. We're sorry. Please forgive us. But the path that these priests are on are headed to destruction, and this echoes a similar response to, that God made in the past. And in Genesis 4, you know, God, uh, Cain and Abel brought an offering before the Lord, and he had regard for Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And Cain kind of got upset. He brought something that was despised to God, and God warned him. He said, Cain, if you bring me an offering that is acceptable, will, will, you, not, you, know, will you not find favor in my eyes? But he said, there's sin that's... It's crouching at the door and it's ready to consume you. And he didn't heed that warning. And we saw that he acted on those desires and he let his desires of his heart capture him. And he chose to murder his brother. Right, there's always a choice that we make. There's never a too late with God, thankfully, Right? No one has ever sinned so much that God can't redeem him. No one has ever passed God's saving power. No liar, no tax cheat, no thief, no murderer, no child molester, no rapist. No one. Even a rotten priest is capable of receiving God's mercy. And as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to repent continuously throughout our lives when we have been disobedient. But the third slip into compromise is to reject the opportunity to repent. And God says, will you not come back to me? And Malachi continues, he says, with such an offering on your part, will he show you any favor? Right? He's pleading with the priests. You know, what do you think you're gaining by these sacrifices? He says, do you think that I have any love for it? You're disregarding my law. 
You know, you're disregarding the whole purpose of the law was to set you apart from everyone else. You give the best to your God because your God deserves it. You are to be holy because you have been especially chosen. You know, perhaps some pastors today don't realize the specialness of their calling. And the one thing that a Levite could not own being in the priestly class was to, to have his own land. And for some reason, their desire in many men's hearts to own land, however you want to categorize that, whether it's to be financially secure or have a big platform, a large church, whatever it is, some want to be recognized. And we know that this is pride. But the Levite wasn't to own land. He was to be cared for by the people and to serve the Lord fully. And in that service, God said, any of the sacrifices that were brought, that you got, you were to eat a portion of them, which ends up making you think like how ridiculous for them to allow these offerings to be made. All right, there's a, there's a passage in 1 Samuel that talks about these two priests that demanded the best meat that, they, that the people brought because they wanted it for themselves. And that was wicked. But these guys have gotten to the state where they're not demanding the best meat, they're demanding like subpar meat. And so they're, not even, they're saying like, you know, it's okay for God and honestly it's okay for myself. You can just kind of see like the complacency that has set in within them, right? They've gotten to the point where they just didn't care. But a man of God is not to be like that, right? We don't think about our own pleasure, but we think about the fact that God desires the very best. And this is not just limited to a pastor, right? Any man of God or any woman of God is not to be like that either. And God says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. He's referring to the temple doors. You might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He's saying, I just wish one of you would just, somebody out there would just stop it. <laughs> I mean, it's happening and we know it happens, but somebody has got to say like, listen, we can't, we can't let this go on. You may not be the one doing it, but you're, you're not the one stopping it. And so sometimes it takes some bold action to set things right. Sometimes it takes bold action to recognize sin in somebody else's life and to come to them and say, listen, you're not giving God your best. Let me help you with that. Fourthly, we see that God tells us to honor him by renewing our love for him. God says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? 
And God just basically says to the priest that, you know, <laughs> I'm just pleased with you. He reminds them where they went wrong. And he adds why. And this is what they had forgotten. And so the forced living of compromise is now hating what you once loved. And so in a sense, you know, if, if the Israelites had just stopped and thought about all the things that God had done, I mean, it's amazing, you know, if you can, if you can get through, you know, Genesis and Exodus and, and you get into Leviticus, and I know there's all those laws and that's usually where people slow down and kind of going through the Bible book by book. But if you read Leviticus and you read Numbers and you read Deuteronomy, but specifically like Leviticus and Numbers, you have kind of God's standard about, you know, how I'm giving you an opportunity for you to interact with me, all right? And, and all throughout kind of history and through the, through those first five books of the Bible, he kind of lays out how he wants man to relate to him, how they can have an opportunity for sinful man to get right with God. And God just continuously through those books does so many miraculous things. And they just forget that, right? I mean, right after God like parts the Red Sea, which is right after he, you know, did 10 plagues in Exodus. Like the people grumble and complain. And so he gives them food and then they grumble and complain that they're thirsty. And so he gives them water. And then they grumble and complain later on that they have the same food and are we going to eat that again? And so then he gives them something different. And then at some point, you know, they say, well, why does Aaron need to be the only priest? Why can't we be priests too? And so these people decide to offer something to God and God rebukes them for it. But all throughout, they like decide to turn back to Egypt and they want to go back into slavery and captivity. And all through, the, you know, through those two books, Leviticus and Numbers, you see like the heart of the people just turn away from God. And the amazing, or the, I don't know if it's amazing, but the, the re, maybe the ridiculous thing about it is, is that their camp was situated in such a way that right in the center of that camp, was their tabernacle. And right in their tabernacle was a cloud of God's presence. And at night, you know, during the day it was a cloud and at night it was this fire. And they could see God. Yet they turned their back on him. And so God just says, remember how I kept with you and I saved you and I I, uh, helped you, brought you into the promised land and I made you victorious after this people. And, you know, I allowed you to come back from the captivity and I gave you your city back and I allowed you to rebuild the temple and I'm here again with you. And they've just forgotten that. In their short history, they've gone back to doing what they wanted to do. And we can see that, you know, in our own lives. Again, as much as I want to like look at them and say like, how could they do that? God was in their midst. I mean, it's the same thing, right? Jesus was given to us to call us out of the depths of our sin, to grant us repentance, to give us the desire to be more righteous so we can actually like become a little bit more like God. He's given us his word written to give us examples of who we can follow. And multiple times in multiple ways, in individual ways, you can probably look back at you know, things in your lives and see how God has worked in our lives. And sometimes we stray. We know that God deserves our best. But the priests were giving him their worst. And it's not only in their offering, but their attitude as well. And their job had just become a job. All right? they, they were just getting tired of giving the sacrifices. And it says that they were snorting at it. This is tiresome to us. I mean, in some sense, that's how God planned it. I mean, for one person to be made right with God, they needed to have a sacrifice. 
And so when you have lots of people, you have lots of sacrifices. And in their duty and in all the things that they need to do in God's law, it was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Till some point they felt, is there going to be some other way? And God had said, yes, there is a Messiah that I'm going to send you. But for now, this is the way that I want you to be right with me. And so I know it was not easy work for them. I have a friend who, uh, he, he, uh, he sells conveyor belts or parts for conveyor belt systems. And he's always got these interesting stories. And one of the stories is that, this is in Texas, and uh, one of the stories of like, some of the places he's gone to is that they have conveyor belts in these slaughterhouses. And uh, so he's got all these interesting things that he talks about and these stories that he talks about. But one of the things was is that he just said that a lot of times the people in the slaughterhouse, you just have these kind of like glazed and, and numb look on their eyes, just as they're like killing one animal after another. And it's just, they've got these sharp knives and often they cut themselves on accident and things like that. It's just kind of a very harsh, but he said there's just kind of this numbness. And so I feel like for us, I mean, when we think about this, we think about, is there anything in our hearts and anything in our lives that we become like spiritually numb to? And can we identify at all with where the priests were headed and turn away? Because in Malachi, he lists a bunch of offenses, and that's the rest of the book is kind of what he's going to go through. I mean, not only the priests offering deficient meat, but he's going to talk about how the Israelites are getting married to unbelievers in chapter 2, and then praying to God while sinning right at the same time, and he just points out that hypocrisy. He points out the fact that they're not giving fully the offerings that they were supposed to give to God, and that many have just lost faith in God. And so you can kind of see how that's playing out amongst not only the priestly class, but the people as well. All right, sometimes it's easy to walk into another person's house and see like the things that need to be fixed or repaired, but it's harder for our own selves just because sometimes we've dealt with it for so long, we either tell ourselves we'll get around to it, or we just don't even recognize it. And so, but God doesn't want that with our faith, right? He loves you, and he wants you to love him too. And so sometimes we just need to renew that love for God, right? We shouldn't tire of worship, but renew that desire to commune with our Lord that we get to do not only corporately, but individually as many times as you want. And so one way we do that is the final thing that he says. It's kind of to open up the lines of communication. So honoring God is being transparent with him. We see that in verse 14. He said, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and he vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So he makes it clear that... Uh, that bringing in a bad sacrifice is failing to give God his due. But it's even worse to do a bait and switch, right? To say we're offering one thing and then to give something else. Like that, that's just shameful. To say like, oh yeah, that, that, that one over there, that, that perfect unblemished lamb, that's, that's for God. And then what do you bring in on the day of sacrifice? You don't bring what you promised. You bring something else. God was pretty clear about the fact that when you make a vow, it was something that you need to uphold. In two different places, in Deuteronomy 23, 21, he says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be a sin to you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. 
However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So he's almost saying, if you vow, you do it. It's better sometimes, he said, it's not sin though, if you just don't make a vow. But sometimes we want to do that for particular reasons. Ecclesiastes 5 says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying for it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So the final slip into compromise is thinking you're spiritually great when you're not. That's just spiritual blindness. Because that ends up being the thing of making a vow, like this is all the things that I'm going to do for God, but deep down you have no intent in doing it. And that's, that's the place where they're at. And we know what that's called. We, we call that hypocrisy. And it's a mask that we put on for the sake of others. But we don't need to pretend with God. Right? We should never be in a place where we think that we are hiding our sin from God. Right? That's ridiculous because nothing is hidden from God. And John in 1 John chapter 1 kind of describes that tension. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Right? Essentially, he's saying we all sin and that's a fact. So, so own up to it. And why should we own up to it? Well, he follows that in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? There is a cleansing effect of acknowledging our sin and confessing it. Right? He forgives no matter what it is. And he always forgives because that's who God is. But then John says in verse 10, if we don't, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now John doesn't accuse us of being liars. He accuses us of making God a liar. Because there's only one God. And if we pretend that we're perfect and that we have no flaws or faults, we're taking the place of God. And if we say that we are a follower of God, right, we carry his name. And John is just repeating the same thing that we see in Malachi, that we're taking his name in vain, that we have despised his name. If we say that we haven't sinned. So, as we close, it's just important to just take stock of our lives and to see how we're doing. All right? Sometimes we get in a spiritual rut. We need to ask ourselves these tough questions. You know, how is our life influencing others? Ask yourself if others are being a good influence on you. Are you building up you know, others around you? or are, you, are they building you up? And as the priest, you know, went into this downward spiral, you know, you can see that if they just turned their heads and corrected, they could start spiraling themselves upwards. And we have a great privilege that as a body of Christ, that we have the ability when we are in a spiritual rut that people can help us, but also that we can help others as well. And so if anything that had kind of touched you today as far as, you know, the things that Malachi said, a hit a nerve, that's a good thing, right? Because we, we want to we get back to the place where we are in a place of blessing by the Lord.
And we can show him honor in all of these ways. Because if God has to wake us up from our spiritual complacency, it's probably a place that we do not want to be in. And so, as J.I. Packer put it, we want to make sure that the pan is tilting in God's direction and not our own. And then we will not slip into this path of compromise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we, are, we are thankful for your prophets. We are thankful that you say the tough words to us. And uh, we're thankful, Lord, that, um, you know, that uh, when we recognize our sin and when we recognize uh, sometimes the, the places where we slip, Lord, you are right there to pick us back up. And that our, our life and our walk with you is not one of guilt or, or uh, shame, but it is one of joy and freedom. And so if we are in that spiral of compromise, Lord, I pray that you will help us find that place of freedom in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that those who uh, are not followers of Christ and are, you know, kind of wrestling what, you know, what is this message and, you know, why does God deserve the very best? And I think those are great questions to ask, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you work in each one of our hearts to just understand who you are as God and creator. And Lord, that we would understand that uh, you desire for us to have a relationship with you and you've laid it out clearly It is only through your son, Jesus Christ. So thank you so much for your message and your words. And uh, we give you praise and thanks. Amen.